Hello, Eric. Hey. Hey, how are you? Good. We got we got it working. Sorry for all the trouble, man. Hey, man. No problem. <laughs> we 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 know how to roll these days. <laughs> how is everything over there? So far, so good, man. We're we're we're, we're in our holiday season, so things are. Uh, you know, wrapping up for the year and uh, things are going well. How about you? Pretty good. And just like, we just finished lockdown like last few months. Okay. And, and just got my second vac vaccination last got week. Got it. Got it. What, what part of Is Taiwan? everything? Oh, sorry, sorry. What part of Taiwan are you in? I'm at Taipei actually. I know oh, you've been here before. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it seems like so long ago now. Yeah, I have I have a few friends, and they go to your like your education when you held it in Taiwan. I think that was like maybe like two or three years ago, right? Yeah, it was at least two years, probably two thousand nineteen. Yeah, two thousand nineteen. Okay, that was cool. Yeah. That was cool. So, so just just over two years ago. Maybe, you, maybe, maybe, yeah, sorry. Are you, are you friends with um, Yao Ling? Yao Ling? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. He's the one that organizes all, all our trips over there. I know, I know, I know him. He's like pretty yeah. good. Yeah, he's, he's good. He takes, yeah. he takes good care of us, feeds us well. <laughs> <laughs> If you're if you're coming next time, I'm going to see, visit you. Okay. All right, for for sure, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Great. So, I know there's a lot of coaches who already know you and okay. are friends of you in Taiwan, but still, can you introduce yourself? A little bit of background, that kind of stuff. For sure, for sure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks everyone for joining us. If you have any questions, I'm sure Eric has questions for us. We're, we're hoping to answer some of those today as well. I'm Dr. Evan Osar. I work out of Chicago, Illinois in the United States. My training is, I started out as a personal trainer and then I went to chiropractic college. So I got my chiropractic degree. My wife and I own, it, own and operate a clinic in Chicago, Illinois. We have a full-time trainer that's certified in our integrative movement specialist system or our integrative movement system system. And it's really a proprietary system to help us work with our clients. And even though we do work with professional athletes and collegiate athletes, high school athletes, we focus on primarily the older population. So most of the people that we see in our clinic are the older population. So when I first started out in the, in the industry 23 years ago, it's hard to believe it's been that long already. I was taught how to train athletes, you know? So when I started to work with the older population, I'm like, this information isn't applying to the older population and the deconditioned population. So that's really what set me on the journey to discovering strategies that work with a general population that wasn't so athletically inclined and or just didn't come with the same sort of background and or motivation as an athlete does. So we've been successful helping so many individuals from across the gamut from people that have joint issues like osteoarthritis, balance issues, fall risks, as well as people that are just looking to feel better in their body and exercise at a healthy level. Got it. So 
since you're like you're a chiropractor and you started with like personal training you just said that right yeah yeah is is and there's an integrated movement system correct so if there's a let's say a patient or like a athlete come to your come to a clinic what kind of assessment will you do first yeah so when we when we have our athletes come in we have this all our clients it doesn't matter if they're an athlete general population we're always doing a thorough assessment so we take our client you know we do a very thorough history because the history then sort of dictates the, the assessment we do. So one of the things we always start out with looking at, and this is sort of controversial a little bit, and to me it shouldn't be, we always look at posture. Because posture is essentially the way a client, an individual stands and holds their body. It's really the basis or the beginning of movement. Now, it's important to recognize that we don't base anything on posture alone. That's where the mistake is made. I made that mistake for many years myself. We never look at posture and say, oh, I know what's going on with that person. Here's an exercise for that posture. We look at posture as a starting place for movement. Then we go into our movement assessment. So we'll look at single leg stance. How does a client stand on single leg? How do they load on single leg? Because again, as an athlete, for an athlete, that's super important. How do they transition and stabilize on single leg stance. We'll look at things like forward bend and squatting to see how well the flexibility of their system, the mobility of their system, as well as how well do they load that lower extremity. If I have a client that has a foot and ankle issue, I wanna see what the feet are doing on the ground. So I wanna see how they're loading that foot tripod, the three points of the foot. I wanna see how they're loading the hip, knee, ankle, and foot. So we're gonna look at the different areas of the body and hone in on it. For example, if we're looking at shoulder issue in our overhead athletes, for example, we wanna look at shoulder flexion. We wanna see how our clients are loading up, how our athlete is loading up as they go into a plank position or a push-up position. So we can see the mechanics of the scapula and the glenohumeral joint. So we're looking at the different areas based upon what the history, what the goals are, and what the individual history has told us so that helps direct us as to where to go cool so you talk about like movement and movement strategy right yep so can we talk a little deeper about what is movement strategy yeah so when we look at a client we're, we're basically evaluating their strategy their strategy for posture and or movement is how the nervous system organizes the information from the proprioceptive system, from the sensory system, so the proprioceptive system, which is contained in our skin, connective tissue, fascia, muscles, tendons, ligaments, as well as the information coming in from the visual system, which is about 50% of our proprioceptive information comes in through the eyes, as well as the vestibular system. It organizes, the central nervous system organizes this information and then puts out a muscle or motor response. So a strategy is the way that individual's nervous system is collecting information and then relaying it out in a sort of motor or muscle or movement performance. So we're looking at how is a client moving? Are they aligning their joints appropriately? Are they controlling their joints appropriately? Are they breathing in an appropriate manner? So all these things collectively 
are what make up the client's strategy. And that's based upon a lot of things. It's based upon history. I should say, when I say history, their medical history. If a client has had an injured ankle, the proprioception from that injured ankle, if they didn't rehab it properly, may not be appropriate or maybe suboptimal, I should say. So that information may not be, they may not have an optimal strategy for how they align and control their ankle and foot. If a client has high levels of stress, which many of our clients do these days, right? Being in lockdown and so forth, they may not be breathing three-dimensionally. So the strategy for breathing is suboptimal and that ultimately re relates to how the client is breathing and stabilizing and moving and ultimately how they maintain their overall strategy. So lots of different things contribute to an individual's overall strategy. What you and I are doing as health and fitness professionals during our assessment is we're assessing the client's strategy for posture and for movement. Cool. So since you brought up breathing, I know talk talk about breathing on different podcasts before, but still I want to ask why is breathing so important? Yeah. When we think about all the things, we, we just talked about the importance of the nervous system. It's always collecting information, right? From our proprioceptive system, our visual system and our vestibular system, whilst also collecting information about our physiological system. The most important of those systems, obviously they're all important and interrelated, the most important of all our physiological systems is breathing. Because we know that we don't live more than three minutes, five minutes at the max without proper breathing. So everything that the nervous system is doing is organizing itself around maintaining optimal levels of breathing. So that's from a physiological level, you know, taking oxygen in, getting rid of carbon dioxide, managing carbon dioxide, nitric oxide, as well as oxygen levels in the body. Now, if we move to, okay, from a, from a posture and movement standpoint, how does breathing relate to that? Well, posture and breathing are basically set up by optimal three-dimensional breathing. Because we can think of three-dimensional breathing in this way. Let, let me grab a ball here. If you think about three-dimensional breathing, it's sort of like the stability ball. When you have a stability ball blown up to its maximum capacity, its, its appropriate capacity, it's very, resistance to being, it's very resistant to being compressed. You can sit on this ball. You can stand on it. I don't recommend that. <laughs> you can sit on the ball. You can put a lot of pressure down on the ball. It doesn't deform because of the pressure inside the ball. Well, what breathing does for us is if we think about our cylinder. Our cylinder is from the first rib right here behind the collarbones to the bottom of the pelvis, the cylinder, your thoracopelvic pelvic cylinder, as we refer to it as, it's controlled not just by muscles, it's also controlled by intra, internal pressure, intra-abdominal and intra-pelvic pressure, but also intra-thoracic pressure. So it's like that stability ball. When we breathe three-dimensionally, we use all aspects of this cylinder, it's resistant to being compressed. So when we see our clients, our athletes, so this is more like our older athletes. Our older athletes, if you look at them, they look like they've essentially been compressed down. That means it's almost like that, that stability ball. If I let like 50% of the air out, now the stability ball is very easily manip manipulated or changes shape. So same thing with our cylinder. When we're breathing three-dimensionally, it's easy to maintain that upright position, that optimal alignment of our spine, of our rib cage, the optimal position and control of our center of mass over our basic support. When we're not breathing optimally, three-dimensionally, when we're not breathing optimally through our nose 
and we breathe more through our mouth, we change the alignment of the head and neck, we change the alignment of the rib cage, then we become less efficient, less optimal with our breathing. We lead, that leads into compensation, the accessory muscles of respiration, the pectoralis minor starts to pull the shoulder more forward. So sternocleidal mastoid, for example, will pull the head more forward to improve levels of gas exchange and optimize that internal physiology of our body. Well, that then changes our posture, changes our movement strategy. So these are the things we often see in our athletes that lead to common issues like chronic tightness, chronic loss of range of motion, more easily fatigued, as well as things like low back pain because now we're not stabilizing that cylinder as optimally as we should. So again, from a posture and movement standpoint, one of the first things we assess, to go back to your earlier question, Eric, is we assess posture and then we look at breathing as well because posture, breathing, and movement are interrelated. They're not separate entities, they're interrelated. And we believe that when you breathe well, you're gonna have an optimal, when you have an optimal breathing strategy, you have an optimal movement strategy because of this interlinking. If your breathing is suboptimal, then your movement strategy is also, and your performance as an athlete will also be suboptimal as well. Cool. So, yeah. Grab, grab some water. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, man. So, talk about like breathing with movement and three-dimensional breathing. What actually is three-dimensional breathing? Yeah, so a lot of people say, oh, it's diaphragmatic breathing. Well, your diaphragm is always working, so everything is diaphragmatic breathing. However, just like any muscle or any movement can be optimal or it can be suboptimal. I mean, think about an athlete. We know what an optimal throw looks like. You know, just say you have a throwing athlete. Well, we know that a throwing athlete, they're going to rotate and then they're going to throw the ball and, you know, derotate or control rotation. Well, we know what rotation not good rotation looks like. We say, oh yeah, they're, they're throwing this way and, and they're just off, right? We, we know what optimal and suboptimal looks like as a, in the context of sport. Well, breathing can also be optimal and suboptimal. Most of our clients that have chronic issues, chronic tightness, discomfort, loss of performance, they have suboptimal breathing strategies. So when we talk about breathing and three-dimensional breathing, it's about using the entire cylinder from that first rib. So, so if you guys are following me here, obviously you're following us. <laughs> Put your fingers on your clavicle and then go straight back. That's your first rib. So your lung is right below your fingers here. Now, if you put, grab your butt and put your fingers on your sit bones, the bones you're, or you're sitting on, that's the bottom of the cylinder. So we need our breath to come all the way from the top of the lungs all the way down towards the, our pelvis because we need to use the diaphragm, which is a dome-shaped structure, we need the diaphragm to push down upon the organs and push the organs so that they push down towards the pelvic floor because the diaphragm and pelvic floor move in unison. So the diaphragm contracts and pushes the organs down. They push them down into the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor then eccentrically lengthens. Then the pelvic floor concentrically contracts to push back up and as the diaphragm is going through its eccentric contraction. So that's three-dimensional breathing, getting the breath all the way down. It's also getting it side to side so that the ribs are moving in their bucket handle sort of formation and to expand the volume of the thoracic cavity. And it's also about breathing front to back. So where a lot of our athletes, and now, now we'll turn our attention more to athletes and, and what we see with our athletes, a lot of our athletes 
are in this hyperextended or lordotic thoracic posture. Well, that limits how much you can breathe. They can breathe into their posterior, the posterior aspect or the back of their rib cage. So you guys do this with me. You'll feel it yourself. So stand up, bring your chest up, squeeze your shoulder blades down and back, take a deep breath in. Again, a lot of athletes are taught this very posture. I was just down in Houston, Texas, working with a buddy of mine who trains professional and collegiate baseball players. And this is the thing we see all the time in these professional and collegiate baseball players. They're all locked into this thoracic hyperextension because that's an overfocus of our industry. Like we're guilty, our industry is guilty of creating that posture and that strategy. So now relax that posture and now think more long through the back of your head and neck and now breathe in, breathe in and breathe in so that you're focusing your breath between your shoulder blades. Because again, we want the ribs to open up through the back as well. Because remember, the lungs are three-dimensional as well as the diaphragm is three-dimensional. It's not just out here. So belly breathing is not optimal breathing. I'll say that again because it's so important. Belly breathing is not diaphragmatic breathing. Remember I said, all breathing is diaphragmatic breathing. Belly breathing is an overemphasis, an over, it's actually a compensation for a lack of breathing around the cylinder. So three-dimensional breathing is being able to breathe all the way around through the entire cylinder, top to bottom. So we do not use the term belly breathing. We do not have our clients belly breathe, unless for some reason they need to focus more of their breath down this way. But that's a very small percentage of our population. And especially with your athletes, very few of your athletes need to belly breathe unless they're really gripping their abdominal wall very tightly and they walk around with their abs pulled in, which some, which some athletes do. But again, that's a very small percentage of athletes. Cool. Got it. So you just mentioned like, like there's no such, I'm sorry, like diaphragm breathing basically is whatever you do is diaphragm breathing. <laughs> exactly. Right? Not working. Yeah. You, you, you've got bigger issues than, than your posture and your movement. <laughs> yeah. So 3D breathing is like three-dimensional breathing is like focusing on more like uh, expanding like your, your like, how do I say this? Your cylinder? Yeah, yeah, yeah expand, expand through your cylinder. Up and down. Yeah. Talk about Side to side, front to back. So that whole, all three dimensions of that thoracopelvic pelvic cylinder. So that kind of breathing also activate the core, right? <clears throat> yeah, the, the other important component, I'm glad you brought that up, Eric, is when you're breathing optimally, it's also you're able to activate your core muscles appropriately. I mentioned how that when you breathe in appropriately to get your diaphragm to move down and push the organs down, it pushes down upon the pelvic floor. Well, the pelvic floor, again, is a, an important stabilizer of the bottom of the thoracopelvic cylinder. It also stabilizes the hip joints because it has fascial connections into the external hip rotators. So again, we need that breath to go down and to move the pelvic floor so the pelvic floor and diaphragm move together. Well, the diaphragm interestingly enough, as we, as we can understand from our anatomy, is attached to, it's fascially attached to the psoas. The psoas connects from your diaphragm down to your pelvic floor. It's actually the only muscle that connects from your psoas down, sorry, connects from your diaphragm down to the pelvic floor. 
So it's basically a myofascial connection. The psoas is a myofascial connection down to the pelvic floor. Well, the diaphragm also attaches to your transverse abdominis that wraps around here to your low back. So they fascially yeah. blend together at the lumbar spine and the lower thoracic spine. Your deep muscles like the quadratus lumborum, the, the deep spinal stabilizers, the multifidi, all fascially blend in with the diaphragm. So that's why we believe and why we believe we see changes in lumbar stability as well as alignment, as well as hip function when we get people breathing better as well as incorporating three-dimensional breathing into their movement strategy. Again, there, there is a little research coming out now discussing how the diaphragm and the psoas and the pelvic floor and how the whole fascial chain, this deep fascial chain, sort of work together. Obviously, we need a lot more research to sort of, sort of explain why, but that's my theory. As all these deep muscles are fascially linked together, they contract prior to movement to help stabilize that joint so then all the big muscles can take over. So that's why we, why we believe we see such changes in our athletes when we help them better align and better cre create a more optimal three-dimensional breathing strategy. Uh, so basically when you breathe better and breathe properly, that's kind of what the joint centration is, right? Yeah, joint centration is just a fancy word that means you align and you control the joint in its most optimal position. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because there's so many people say, well, Dr. Osa, there's no such thing as an optimal position. There's no research on that. I'm like, yeah, there's very little research on it. But we know from anatomy that every single joint has a best position for loading. Yeah. For example, yeah. if you take the final disc, I just happen to have one sitting here. <laughs> if you take the final disc, <laughs> my skeleton fell apart, so I have just this random disc sitting around. If you take a spinal disc, for example, your, sp your vertebrae is best loaded when the load is somewhere centered around the center of this disc. Yes, you can load in extension and the back side of the disc. Yes, you can load in flexion on the front side, lateral flexion to one side. But if you walked around like this all the time, obviously some people do if they have significant scoliosis, you keep overloading one side of the disc. Well, every joint in your body is the same way. Your hip is the same way. There's an optimal position to look, position and load that hip joint. So there's a position, an optimal position of centration for every single joint. What our goal is, is to get our clients, especially our athletes, in that best position to load their joints, which limits the wear and tear on the joint. And again, there's no research on it because no one's researched that because it's so hard to control for, for, to do a study like that, to actually look at the joint. You have to x-ray the joint, look at the, you know, MRI the joint to look at the cartilage thickness, and then monitor these people for 10 years and get people to do a, a well-centrated joint and a not well-centrated joint, and then compare them after a bunch of years. You just can't, it's physically impossible to create that kind of study. So we have to look at what are the optimal biomechanics of the joint? How do we get the joint into the best biomechanical position? How do we optimize the control of that joint, the whole motor control training around that joint, and then look at the result of our performance, of our athletes performing? That's, and that's the cool thing about working with athletes is because they will, they will figure out very quickly if that strategy that you're teaching them works and or doesn't work. 
So it may take a little more time if you're working with a general population or an older client, but with athletes, you should be able to see a change in performance when you help them improve and align their joints. And yeah. the last thing about that is we've worked with, with all the professional dance companies in Chicago. And one of the things that when we talk about athletes, so we never look at professional dancers. And when you think about the, the profession or the athletic profession that has the best control of their body, it's the professional dancer because they learn how to move their bodies from a very young age. And yeah. every single across the board, they know when their joint is in the right position and when it's not. No one knows, no professional athlete knows their body better than a professional dancer. So we know that this information works because we see it work with the highest level professional dancers as well. Cool. So, so much for breathing. So next <laughs> I can, sorry, I love it. But I kind of want to talk about like psoas. Same as breathing, I know talk on different podcasts before, but still want to talk about psoas. So what, what is like the function of the psoas? And I know there's a lot of people going to talk about like psoas with like uh, low back pain. And you mentioned before with the, sorry, I forgot the name. The, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot the hip, what, the hip? Uh, Pelvic floor? No, 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 the, like the hip syndrome. Oh, femoral acetabular impingement? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Okay, no, anyway. no worries. Anyway, I want to talk about the psoas and the posture. Okay. Oh, oh, I forgot. I, I remember this. The psoas with the posture of this hip. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Got yeah. It. Okay, sorry. cool. You know, the two things I love talking about, talking about the most, the three things, number one, shoulder, number two, Actually, it's not, not in order, but number one, shoulder. Number two, breathing. Number three, the psoas. Because the psoas is, 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 is like misunderstood, just like belly breathing is misunderstood. So if you look at the physiological or, or the anatomical attachments of the psoas, the psoas attaches to one of the things I, I did when I wrote the book, The Psoas Solution, is I combined the psoas minor and psoas major and just talked about it as the psoas. And here's why I did that because the psoas minor is absent in about 40% of individuals. So 40% of us are walking around without a physical psoas minor. However, in those individuals, so this is looking at cadavers, so this is how, how they get this information. In the individuals that do not have a psoas minor, the psoas major sends fascial attachments to the exact same location of where the psoas minor would be. So fascially and anatomically, there's about the same connections in both individuals. So we'll collectively talk about the psoas as the psoas major and minor together. So the psoas major and minor attaches from the lower thoracic vertebrae, it attaches to the vertebral body, and it also attaches to the transverse process as well as the front side of the disc of T11, T12, L1, 2, 3, and 4. Then it goes down and the psoas minor, so again, the psoas, attaches to the front side of the pelvis, so to the front side of the pelvic brim, and then it also obviously goes down to attach into the lesser trochanter of the femur, so inside the groin there. 
Now, if we look at just those attachments, we wouldn't have a complete picture because the psoas also fascially blends to the diaphragm, as we talked about. It fascially blends into the transversus abdominis. It also fascially blends into the pelvic floor before it goes down and attaches into the hip. So when we look at a muscle who connects to, which, which connects to T11, T12, a one, two, three, four, to the discs of those levels, it attaches to the pelvis and the pelvic floor. It attaches fascially to the diaphragm transversus abdominis before it goes down to the hip. It doesn't sound like a muscle whose job it is just to flex the hip. Like we all learn, myself included, back in chiropractic school and in, in every single anatomy course I took, which I took easily a dozen anatomy courses over the years. So what does it do then? Well, the little bit of research there is on the psoas is yes, it will help hip flexion. It's not a primary mover like we've all learned. Because when you think about it, it's like it doesn't attach to a, a location that would make it a prime mover. It's too close to the axis of rotation. Muscles that are close to the axis of rotation, so it, it attaches to the front side of, of the hip joint, it's too close to the axis of rotation to be a prime mover. The prime movers of hip flexion are sartorius, tensor fasciolata, and rectus femoris. They're further away from the axis of rotation. They're, they have longer lever arms, so those are more the primary muscles of hip flexion. The psoas attaches right to the joint, so what it likely does, most likely does, is it draws the femoral head into the acetabulum, so it pulls the ball into the socket to stabilize it, so then the prime movers can do hip flexion more effectively. It also contracts to stabilize and compress the lumbar spine so that when we're moving and or hip flexing, that the spine isn't pulled by the movement of the muscles around it or the trunk and the tr movement of the trunk and spine as well as movement of the lower extremity. So mostly it functions as a stabilizer of the lumbar spine, the pelvis and the hip joint. And secondarily, it will help flex the hip and externally rotate the hip. But again, it's not a prime function. And I've looked at basically all the research because again, there isn't a lot of research on it. <laughs> so it's easy to look at all the research. So even though people will say, oh, it's a prime mover hip flexion, that's more just opinion than actual fact when we look at muscles that are deep compared to muscles that are superficial. For example, you would never say that, that a deep muscle like the multifidi are primary spinal extensors. No, the lumbar erectors that are on the surface are your primary lumbar extensors. The multifidi can lumbar extend or they can extend the lumbar spine. They're not the prime movers. Their job is yeah. mostly to stabilize the vertebrae on top of each other. Well, the psoas is the exact same muscle, an analogous muscle on the front side of the spine. Its job is to stabilize that lumbar spine, to stabilize the hip and the joint, so the rest of the muscles around the trunk and spine and the pelvis and the hip complex, they can do the movement as a psoas and the other deep stabilizers help to control the position of those joints. Cool, got it. So basically there's like, uh, from what you just said, psoas has nothing to do with like anterior tilt. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's another thing we all learn. Psoas is a cause of anterior tilt. But if you look at the anatomical attachments, again, it's not my opinion, it's the anatomical attachments. It doesn't attach to anywhere on the pelvis where it could actually cause anterior pelvic rotation. Can the iliacus, the iliacus is sitting inside your pelvis and going down to the lesser trochanter. 
of the femur, yes, the, the iliacus can, the rectus femoris can, the sartorius can, the tensor fasciolata can, the psoas can not. In fact, if you actually look at the research, some of the research is saying that the psoas actually counteracts the anterior pelvic rotation of those other muscles that I just mentioned. Got it, man. So, <laughs> so yeah, thanks for like, I know, I know you're like mentioned all these like probably a thousand times. <laughs> That's okay. It's good. It's good to repeat because there's a thousand articles that come out every single, not a thousand, but there's lots of articles that are still coming out saying, yep, your psoas is a cause of anterior pelvic tilt. Your psoas is a cause of, of everybody's pain. You got to stretch the psoas. You got to release the psoas. And, and again, we rarely, rarely stretch the psoas. We rarely release the psoas. We, we, and, and this is a, this is an important point. The psoas is never the, there's never one, one muscle that's the cause of people's problems. There's never, it, it, I should say never, it rarely happens that yeah. one is the cause of people's problems. Remember I said, as we started this conversation, it's, it's a strategy issue. It's not one muscle that's causing the issue. One muscle may be involved and more so than another muscle, but it's never just one muscle that needs attention. So, so even though my book is called The Psoas Solution, it doesn't, if you read the book, it's not about the psoas. It looks at the psoas in relationship to the other muscles around the thoracopelvic cylinder. So it's like it's like the concept of like fascia, right? There's always yes. like it's it's not always not, there's not going to be one muscle that causes the problem. No, it's like yeah. saying yeah, the, the, one one area of fascia that, that, that's, that's causing the problem. It's just, the body doesn't work that way understanding because here's, here's, here's another complaint or I should say criticism of people that like me that pay attention to anatomy. Well, if it's never one muscle, then why do you pay attention to one muscle or discuss one muscle? Because understanding the pieces or the parts of the whole system gives a better clue about how the whole system works. It's like a mechanic. A mechanic has to know, understand each component of the car and how they collectively work together to make your engine run. So understanding the different pieces allows us to better understand to the best of our ability and our knowledge how the whole body works in posture and movement and in performance. So we're never saying like, hey, the psoas is the answer or, or the problem. We're just saying, hey, the psoas is a piece of the overall strategy. Our goal as health and fitness professionals is to find our client's strategy so that we can help our client perform at their best. Yeah, man. Got it. So, since I brought, since I, since we talk about like psoas and breathing, I'm not gonna let them go without talking about the shoulder. You just mentioned like you you want to talk about like you love to talk about like shoulder and breathing and psoas. So, can you like talk a little about about the shoulder? Sorry. Sure. Sure. What would you like to hear about the shoulder? <laughs> like mobility and like how to train the mobility and stability. Yeah. So here's one, here's one of the things we teach in our certification course, the Integrative Movement Specialist Certification course. This is, this is one of the most important concepts. It's one of the simplest and it's one of the most important concepts. The first, the first step in solving any problem is to first identify the cause of the problem, okay? 
So that's the first step. The second step is to stop doing the things that are causing that problem. For a lot of the people that I consult with, especially athletes, the very first thing I need to do is to start to identify the strategies that they've been taught, usually by other health and fitness professionals or you know, coaching or trainers. They have to stop doing the things that are decreasing mobility. One of the biggest things that decreases mobility is focusing way too much on external rotation and developing external rotation and squeezing the shoulder blade down and back. Because if you do yeah. this with me, again, super easy to prove this. Squeeze your shoulder blades down and back and bring your arm overhead, okay? As you can see, can't get my arm overhead without doing this right here, without yeah. back. So if I squeeze down and back and I focus so much attention on external rotation and developing, strengthening the posterior chain, I'm going to lose or I'm going to cause my athlete to lose mobility in their shoulder. I see it every single – in most athletes that I evaluate, that's the problem with overhead athletes. So the first step, identify the problem. Second step is to stop doing the strategy that's been causing the suboptimal strategies that are causing the problem in the first place. Now, you don't really need me to talk about mobility because everybody's doing mobility work. You know how to create – most of us know how to create mobility already. You don't need me to go through mobility drills and there's, there's hundreds of, the, of them online. What I just told you is, is actually the most important thing as far as helping your client create a, and sustain more optimal mobility. Now from a stability standpoint, stability is a more challenging sort of issue because there's, there's, there's a, when we look at scapular issues or shoulder issues, they're often related to scapular sort of issues, scapular dyskinesia. We see that a lot in our athletes. So essentially scapular dyskinesia is when the scapula aren't gliding and made, there's not optimal centration of that scapula on the back of the rib cage during motion. There's two common causes of that. Number one is again, I just discussed, it's too much retraction and depression that's disrupting optimal scapular mechanics on the rib cage. The second issue is a bit more complicated, but this is again what we're seeing in tons of our athletes. It's actually a nerve issue. It's actually a long thoracic nerve issue. The long thoracic nerve comes out of the lower cervical spine and it goes down to innervate the serratus anterior. Serratus anterior is the muscle that helps Again, there's lots of muscles, but the serratus anterior is one of those muscles, the prime muscle that helps to hold the scapula on the rib cage and keep it in its most optimal position on the rib cage. The more you jack up the neck, the less or the more likely it is you can impinge upon that long thoracic nerve that goes down to the serratus. So most of the cases in athletes, and especially young athletes, I just worked with a 16-year-old kid virtually. He, he had scapular winging scapular dyskinesia. He had been to physical therapist. He even saw an orthopedic surgeon that works with a professional baseball team. So you'd, you'd think that this guy would know and understand this issue, but he was going for exploratory surgery and he was going for surgery. He was eventually was going to go for surgery to release the long thoracic nerve, which, which I told his mother, I'm like, he will likely never be a great baseball player if he goes and has a surgery because they're, they're addressing the symptoms of the issue, not the cause of the issue. So I had him find a massage therapist in his area because he wasn't in the area where I am. So, the, so I talked to a massage therapist through how to release his neck, how to work with his neck, how to improve his breathing, how to work with his breathing. 
because again, if you're if your nerve is getting trapped in your neck, you're likely not breathing well. That's likely another cause of nerve impingement coming from the neck. Four sessions with a massage therapist, basically four weeks after he had a, basically six months of the shoulder problem, no issues. Now his mother just sent me a, a text just a few, a few weeks, last week I believe it was, that he's throwing, he's almost back to throwing at the exact speed he was prior to his injury, no surgery, and he's, and he, and he's much stronger physically and mentally as having gone through this process. And again, we see this with so many athletes that, are get, that, are, that never reach their full potential because they're never, the people that are working with them just aren't addressing the issues. So first, look at scapular mechanics, but also remember that most of your scapular stabilizers, especially the serratus anterior, those nerves are coming from the neck. If your neck and your thorax are off because your breathing is off, and this is almost you know, across the board with, with our athletes, their breathing is suboptimal, their posture is suboptimal, so they're gonna overload their neck, they're gonna develop shoulder issues. So the best way to maintain, develop, and maintain shoulder mobility is to stop doing the excessive retraction and depression and then maintain optimal alignment and three-dimensional breathing so that you support the head and neck and the rib cage, which then helps support the shoulder blade and the shoulder on top of the rib cage. Cool, man. Learn a lot. Awesome. I mean, awesome. I really learned a lot from today. Thanks. That's great. I so, actually just wrote that. I'm, I'm, I'm writing the second edition of Corrective Exercise Solutions to, to Shoulder and Hip Issues. So I, I literally just finished writing that section of the book. So it was, it was fresh in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably all the question I have for today. So thank all you right, for great. answering my, thank my you for invite. So you just mentioned that there's a second edition about your book, right? And so can I tell like coaches and talent about the book and is there going to be a new like education? So yeah, so that so I'm currently working on the second edition of Corrective Exercise Solutions. I, I wrote the first book. It came out in 2012. So next year will, will be the 10-year anniversary since I wrote that book. So hopefully the next edition will be out. Not hopefully. It'll be out next year. So looking forward to that. And then we have our certification, the Integrative Movement Specialist Certification. You can just you can find out more about that through our website. That's that's a year long intensive. I mean, it's an, an intensive program where we take you through the anatomy, biomechanics, motor control of the body, the shoulder, the thoracopelvic cylinder, the hip, knee, ankle, and foot. We walk you through the assessments, the corrective exercises, and the functional integration. Like I said, you'll do case studies. So so so. We want to make sure that you understand this information and are applying this information to your athletes because that's how you learn is by applying the information. And then, then if the world changes and, and you're able to travel, we're able to travel, you'll come out to our, our clinic and, and we walk you through the, uh, the, the last part of the module at the end of the year that for, for a live training and session and skills enhancement. So it's really an intense program. So, so if people are looking for that, just reach out to my reach out to us through the Instagram page IIHFP so if the pandemic and I'm gonna visit you okay <laughs> ah, dude if the pandemic ends I'm visiting you over in Taiwan as well so <laughs> thank you appreciate it thanks Eric thanks for all you do thanks for having me on thanks for everybody that was on and listening appreciate you guys appreciate it see you bye bye So that
That's all for today.